it is a competitive advantage for not only an individual who wants to make themselves more marketable and to command a higher salary, but it is also a competitive advantage for a facility or a corporate structure that owns hundreds of facilities to ensure higher quality outcomes by giving their nurses access to this education. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive in to this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Tracy Moorhead, President and CEO of the American Association of Post-Acute Care Nursing, or APACIM. Tracy, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. So Tracy, tell us about APACIM. APACIM is the American Association of Post-Acute Care Nursing, and we provide education, resources, and certification for nurses who work in primarily skilled nursing facilities, but also other post-acute care settings. We've been around for about 20 years, and our certifications are recognized by skilled nursing facility owners and administrators as really high-quality educational resources for their staff. Tracy, this kind of training is so important. You've talked about how in traditional nursing schools, post-acute care is not taught. So maybe you can tell us what post-acute care is and why isn't it being taught in the schools? I know. It's really a sad fact, and it is creating a significant, if not crisis, shortage of nurses in post-acute care settings. So first of all, post-acute care is where you go after you've had an acute care episode. So something has landed you in the hospital. It might be a heart attack. It might be a joint replacement, but something has required you to be in a hospital setting. And it means you're not ready to go back to your home to be integrated back into your activities of daily living and really resume the lifestyle that you had. You might need some level of care, but not hospital level of care. It also encompasses home health skilled nursing, inpatient rehab, those types of settings are considered post-acute care. Why it's not taught in nursing schools is really an ongoing question. And as I mentioned, it's creating this crisis. There are entities that require specific curriculum to be taught in schools of nursing, and they focus on acute care needs. So they focus on training nurses to work in an emergency room or in a hospital. And at the very, very beginning of a nursing school experience, a nurse will be sent to a rotation in a post-acute care facility. They've had no training. They don't understand the difference between acute care and post-acute care. And they come out of these post-acute care rotations that are usually in their first semester of nursing school. And they think, oh, I never want to go back there. We have tried to ask nursing schools to please move your rotation to later in your curriculum when they have more skills and they don't feel like they're being dropped into a situation that they don't understand and they don't have the 
skills to really support. But most schools of nursing just do not have the appropriate post-acute care curriculum to really encourage nurses to choose this setting of care once they're finished with their nursing school education. Wow. So hence the need for your training. But before we get into that, Tracy, maybe you can tell us about your journey to becoming president and CEO of a PAC-IN. Sure. I never thought I would be involved in associations. When I was in college, I wanted to be in the foreign service. And my major, my undergraduate major, was really focused on Soviet foreign policy and Soviet geography. And I wanted to go to law school. Being in the association world was nowhere on my radar. I didn't get into the foreign service because I failed the Russian language exam. Oh, man. I know, right? It was a bear. So I picked a new career path and I went to work for a law firm in Washington, D.C. as a legislative assistant. I really wasn't even sure what that meant, but all of our clients were associations. And so I was working for associations, but on behalf of the law firm, and I was really fascinated by how they worked with their members and the representation that we were offering them on Capitol Hill. So I became a lobbyist. And I was a tax lobbyist throughout most of the 90s. And then I began working for an association myself. I worked for a healthcare organization and I was VP of government affairs. And then I was asked to come and run an association. So this is actually my third association CEO role. And I came to a PAC-IN because they were in the midst of a significant transition from their founder who had an incredible vision for how to help nurses better serve patients in post-acute care. And they were looking to transition from an organization that only provided education in skilled nursing to one that addressed more of the unified post-acute care model. And that is something, it's a very technical term, but it's something that the federal government is focused on, really leveling the playing field between post-acute care sectors so that patients get sent to the right post-acute care setting. And because of the experience I had in my other CEO opportunities, this organization seemed like a nice challenge to me. And they were also very interested in the experiences I had had in government affairs and policy development in other organizations. Boy, that is amazing. So how long have you been at APACA now? I've been here for four years. So four years, you and I talk about APACA all the time. Tracy and I are in a CEO peer group, so I get to see her once a month, which is a total treat. And Tracy, this pandemic has been challenging for all the healthcare organizations. A packet is thriving and a packet is growing. So how are you managing that? First of all, let me recognize that our members are the nurses who were on the front line of the pandemic in the first half of 2020 when nursing homes were losing patients and they didn't have enough protective equipment. And they were being criticized right and left and they didn't have the training. I mean, it was awful. Right. They were sleeping in the nursing facilities. They couldn't go home. They didn't want to expose their families to potentially COVID that might be in their buildings. They didn't want to come back into the buildings after being with their families and perhaps bring an outside contamination into the facility. These nurses are true heroes. And I, some of them will say, you know, don't call us a hero. We were just doing our job. They are heroes. They are heroes. Absolutely. And in 2020, we saw a significant reduction in membership. 
it was primarily because our members and other nurses didn't have the time to focus on education or renewing something like an association membership. And we have traditionally been an individual member organization. But coming into 2021, we began to see a rebound of our individual member numbers. At the same time, we've also been expanding a new membership category that focuses at the corporate level so that facilities can buy memberships for however many number of members they want. And so coming out of the pandemic, August and September of 2022 have been our highest membership months in five years. So membership is coming back. And it's because we need to ensure that these facilities have highly skilled nurses on staff. And as facilities are able to find new staff to replace those who left, the facilities want to ensure that their nurses, they have access to our education. Hang on. So traditionally, you've been an individual membership society. And so now you're keeping that. You can still be an individual member, but now you've got a corporate level membership. Yes. So how does that work? Like, is it changing your governance? Is it changing your board structure? No, we haven't had to make any changes because of that. We did, in terms of governance, create some at-large board positions. We created those specifically to bring in some shorter term expertise just to help our board think through strategic questions. So we added three at-large positions to the board and our board is a max of 15 people. And the three at-large positions are one-year terms versus the regular three-year. And those at-large positions were really envisioned to give the board an opportunity to get a different perspective. Most of our board members are nurses in facilities, whereas the at-large members are nurses in you know, home health, for example, or in another association with other governance challenges or other leadership opportunities, or even may have a health information technology background. So we just created those seats so that folks could come in and help us think through issues on a shorter term without having to serve a full three-year term. So that's the only governance structure change that we made, but it really isn't related to the membership structure. Well, let me ask you a question. Is it a situation where the individual members pay for their own membership or the company they work for? And for the corporate members, are they now kind of footing the bill for all the nurses? What's the impact of that? Yeah, that's a great question. So you've got it exactly right. As traditionally an individual membership organization, the individuals typically paid for their own education and their own certification. On some occasions, we would have a facility come in and pay for one nurse or two nurses to avail themselves of this and to get the certification. But for the most part, individuals paid for it. And the dues are fairly low. It's around $120 to be a member. So it's not a heavy lift for an individual. What we recognize is that it is a competitive advantage for not only an individual who wants to make themselves more marketable and to command a higher salary, But it is also a competitive advantage for a facility or a corporate structure that owns hundreds of facilities to ensure higher quality outcomes by giving their nurses access to this education. So we now have a corporate structure that we didn't have four years ago. The corporate structure allows a corporation to come in and say, I have 100 facilities. I want to buy memberships for two nurses in each of my facilities, and I want them to have access to your education. Amazing. We have a different pricing structure depending on what level of education they want them to get. 
But that development of that membership category has, it has certainly decreased the number of individual members we have, but it has significantly increased the overall memberships because we have more and more of these corporate entities coming in and saying, I want to buy memberships for 500 nurses. I want to buy memberships for 400 or 250. Wow. Amazing. And Tracy, you've also talked about how you're conducting research that's also driving membership and also driving the prominence of the organization. So tell us about that. Because if your members aren't, well, you've talked about how they're busy, right? And they're still busy. I mean, I've got other clients in healthcare and they're saying, wow, our members are busy and they don't have time to be taking courses. So if they're not taking courses, there've got to be other benefits. And you've got this amazing research. Yes. First of all, we do have other benefits. We have tools that we send out every month that my team creates. These tools are incredibly detailed and they take compliance related issues for government programs and make them readable for some a nurse in the field to actually use. So that is one significant benefit. But on the research side, the APACAN board of directors had always assumed that there was an ROI to membership. Whether you were an individual and you could say, you know, I'm going to command a higher salary because I have a certification, or you were a facility and you could say, we think that having these certified members, certified nurses on our staff gives us better quality measure outcomes. And this is something that the government measures. You have to report and the government will say, are you a five-star facility? Are you a four-star facility? How did you perform on these quality indicators of patient care? So two years ago, we launched our first research project to really try and demonstrate the ROI that we had long assumed existed. And we were able to partner with one of our business partners, who is a widely regarded industry leader in data analytics, a company called Innovalon. And Innovalon took the data of our members, so we know which facilities our members work in. And they compared that with a CMS, a Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services database of the quality outcomes for every facility in the United States. So you remove the facilities that don't have an APACN member. So we have over 15,000 members. Wow. There are about 15,000 facilities in the country. We have at least one nurse in about a third of the facilities across the country. So our pool is a third of the skilled nursing facilities around the country. And last year, we put out our first report, and we were able to demonstrate with a statistical significance that our facilities that have one or more APACN certified nurses on staff perform better in five quality measure areas. Wow. Now, that was exciting enough. It conclusively demonstrated that our members drive quality outcomes, which in turn increases reimbursement for those facilities. So it's not just a reputation of we have better quality. It's also financial. We're making more money. Because Medicare says, if you have better outcomes, we're going to pay you more because you're worth it. Exactly. Exactly. So we are about to put out our second report. We did the report again second year in a row, this year we conclusively demonstrate with a statistical significance that our members perform better on nine of 18 quality measures. Wow. So Tracy, how many nurses on average at a nursing facility? It depends. It really depends on how many beds they have in the facility and how many patients. There's no one answer to that question. 
But even having one, a pack and trained nurse drives quality that way. So if you had all of them trained, amazing impact. And if you've got nurses in one third of the facilities, man, the future is bright for a pack in. And the reality is it's not just nurses now who are getting our certifications. You know, when you're in a skilled nursing facility, you have physical therapists, you have occupational therapists, you have speech language pathologist therapists. Many more of these therapists of all three divisions are taking the APACAN certifications. So not only are the nurses getting certified and driving improvement in quality measures, but the therapists are getting certified. We not only have an interdisciplinary certificate program specifically for therapists, but more therapists are taking the nurse-specific certification as well so that they can better support the nurses in the facility completing the assessment documents. Amazing. Tracy, you mentioned some tools. I don't really know about them. And these tools, it sounds like they're driving engagement and membership too. So give us an example of a tool that a nurse would need in the field. One of my favorites, there's an alphabet soup of government quality programs. Right. There's the SNF QRP, which is Skilled Nursing Facility Quality Reporting Program. There's the quality measures program, which we call the QMs. There are two or three others, right? And the nurses on facility are supposed to understand and know what impacts each one of these specific measures in each of these specific programs. And how are they supposed to know all this when they're not teaching this in school? Right. No, they're not teaching it in school. And many facilities don't have the resources to really break it down. So my team developed this amazing document. It's color-coded. It's got all these nice little emblems and symbols on them. We hear from our members that this one tool, which is three pages long, this one tool provides greater clarity on where they need to focus because the nurses in the facility can then go get their CMS report and they can look at this tool that we have and they can see where they have room for improvement. And so then they can double down in their facility with additional education, with more communication structures, better processes to improve the outcomes in any individual quality measure just by virtue of this tool that makes it very clear where they need to focus and which program where they're focusing will improve. And Tracy, this is a tool that every member gets? Yes, they're only for members, but we put out one free tool every month. Wow. Sometimes it's a worksheet. Sometimes it's just a one-page quick worksheet that a very technical assessment that a nurse will have to do for a new patient is something that can take quite a while. And if they get it wrong, then their reimbursement will be wrong. And it may throw off their quality outcomes, their quality measures that we've been talking about. But a simple worksheet can help them. It's almost like a flowchart. If this, then that. But breaking it down and giving them a one-pager that they can walk around their facility with is something that really helps them improve their outcomes. And so those are the types of tools that our staff is putting out every month for our members, and they're only available to members. Wow, amazing. Tracy, it sounds like you're leading an organization into the future and really giving your members the tools they need to be successful, and you're thriving as a result. Congratulations. Thank you. It has been a really difficult couple of years. And, you know, we've tried to focus on supporting our members where we can with not only tools and resources, but just bolstering their mood and their feeling of accomplishment and the feeling that they are valued 
in their careers. We've done a lot of that. We had our first back in-person conference this April. We had a lot of cheerleading and really just supportive discussions about we've come through this. How can we make sure that it doesn't happen again? What do we learn from this? And what do you need from us as a packing going forward? So coming out of the pandemic, what is the mood? What's morale? Because nursing has just taken a beating during the pandemic. Morale is not good. I'm not going to lie. It is not good. And partly it's not good because facilities can't hire enough staff. And I don't mean just nurses. I mean, dishwashers and laundry folks and people who are therapists as well as nurses. There is a shortage at every single level in these facilities. And the reality is if they don't have enough staff, facilities can't take patients. So there are hospitals that have patients in the hospital that they can't transfer to a skilled nursing facility because the skilled nursing facility doesn't have the staff to take them on. The hospitals also have shortages of staff at every level, not just nursing. So it's, I don't think that the healthcare industry is any different than many of the struggles we've heard in other industries. I mean, restaurants don't have enough staff either. Construction, everything. Right. And so morale is not good, but I think that it is primarily an indication of the shortage of staff they still are committed to caring for patients. They still want to ensure that their patients have everything they need to thrive in their facility and get back to their home. But it is really a challenge right now. Well, Tracy, it sounds like you're doing your best to take care of your members. And I am so grateful to you for giving me time today and for sharing the amazing things that Apacin is doing. Thank you so much. I hope you can come back. I would love that. Thank you, Joanne. I love our chats. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye.